Good afternoon. Welcome to Midday Magazine for Friday, April 21st. I'm Julie Hersey for KFSK News. The Alaska Raptor Center treats and rehabilitates over 200 injured birds each year, but not all of them can be returned to the wild. Some of these non-releasable birds get to join the raptors in residence team at the center where they help teach school kids about the natural history of raptors. Shelby Herbert has more on the birds that visited Petersburg schools in the last week of March. Allison the Owl and Jake the Hawk flew down from the Alaska Raptor Center in Sitka to Petersburg, but they didn't fly in on their own. They came on a seaplane with their human handlers. In the Petersburg Middle and High School Auditorium, Jake perches on Jennifer Cedarleaf's gloved hand. Cedarleaf is the avian director for the Alaska Raptor Center. Jake is a red-tailed hawk, a rich brown bird with a pale belly and, you guessed it, a red tail. She intermittently feeds Jake chunks of raw chicken on stage. And then, to her audience's amazement, she pulls out a spray bottle and squirts Jake with water. Cedarleaf explains why. Why did you spray Jake with water? Explain yourself. Uh, so birds don't really sweat like we do. We get hot, we sweat. Um, they sweat through their feet. He also was on an airplane earlier today and hasn't really had any water. Uh, they get most of their moisture from their food that they eat. But he's also eating chicken today, which is a little sticky. Sometimes helps distract them and helps calm them down and cool them down. Jake found his way to the Alaska Raptor Center in 2014. He was taken from the nest as a chick and raised by a 13-year-old boy. After four months, the family surrendered Jake to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. In spite of the strap, or Jess, tethering his foot to Cedar Leaf's glove, Jake periodically beats his wings in the air. Jake is completely capable of flying. The injury that brought him to the Raptor Center isn't physical, but behavioral. He can't hunt for himself because he's always relied on humans for food. Petersburg students had lots of questions about him. What's a red-tailed hawk like to do? What's a red-tailed hawk like to do? That's a good question. Um, it's not one I can answer for sure because I don't know what they're thinking in their brains. I will say what they commonly do is sit in a tree. They spend a lot of their days sitting in a tree or on a cactus or on a skyscraper. Um, they fly when they're looking for food or when they're traveling down south. And they do sometimes play. So not a lot of birds play, but red-tailed hawks have been seen basically passing a stick back and forth in a little game. That's Hannah Blank. They're an avian care specialist at the Raptor Center. They fielded some interesting questions from students. I see a hand in the back. Yeah. Oh, will it eat my dog? Will it eat your dog? How big's your dog? Little. Mm, probably not. Not a red-tailed hawk. Bald eagle, maybe. Allison the Great Horned Owl is perched on Blank's glove. Allison was admitted to the Bird Treatment and Learning Center in Anchorage with fractured wrist bones and a wound on her chest. She can fly a little bit, but not well enough to survive in the wild. Blank points it out when Allison tucks away the feathery horns on her head. Uh, she's not really showing off her namesake right now, but this species is named after these two tufts of feathers on the top of her head. Sometimes you'll hear those referred to as ear tufts. I personally hate that because they have absolutely nothing to do with her hearing. These tufts of feathers are simply feathers. I prefer the term feather horns because that sounds really metal. Cedar Leaf says the raptors haven't gotten to go on tour in recent years. 
That's because of a statewide outbreak of highly pathogenic avian influenza, a virus that's deadly to birds. However, her team hopes to do more visits this summer, starting with the Yakutat Turn Festival in early June. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. An advisory board endorsed librarians' placement of a book on relationships and sexuality within the Ketchikan Public Library's teen section. Eric Stone has this report from Ketchikan. The book, titled Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships, and Being a Human by Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan, faced a challenge from resident Tanya Headland. The library's director, Pat Tully, said it was the first time a book had been challenged in at least a decade. In Headland's initial request, dated February 10th, she asked the library to remove the book from its shelves. She later revised her request to ask librarians to move the book to the adult section from its current home in the teen room. Edland was one of more than two dozen residents who spoke at a public hearing in front of the library's advisory board. I am not asking for this book to be banned. I agree that we have the right to read whatever we want. And with that being said, it is our job as adults and parents to protect children from content which is inappropriate. After reading the book three times, I see alarming issues like sexting and searching pornography. The public hearing followed the children's librarian and library director's earlier decisions to deny Headland's request to move the book. The library does not restrict access to its books, and children and teens are able to check out books from the adult section. Testimony at the hearing was split roughly evenly between those who wanted to move the book and those who said they preferred it stay where it is. Some people who asked for the book to be moved, including Cindy Taylor, objected to a section of the book that discusses sexting. I started reading some of the stuff, and when you do talk about the sexting and hiding your face and doing photos of yourself. The thing that I particularly don't like about that is that once you post something on the internet, it stays. It never goes away. Proponents of the book's presence in the teen section said it was a valuable, comprehensive resource covering all kinds of complex situations, from abusive relationships to safe sex. High school freshman Braden Young was one of two teens that addressed the advisory board. I think that we need this book. I think that there are so many people in my grade that don't have the information um, that will make maybe an uninformed decision that will get them in a dangerous or scary situation that could have been avoided by reading a book that informed them in a way that they felt safe with. She pointed in particular to the section on sexting. We know that kids do this. I think that if they knew to do this safely and in a way that couldn't be maybe used against them or used in a way that could embarrass them with identifiable parts of themselves in the photos, I think that that could help a lot of kids keep themselves safe and maybe feel more comfortable and make better decisions. Ketchikan's city attorney Mitch Seaver issued a memo ahead of the meeting. He cited a wide range of court cases indicating that libraries cannot restrict minors' access to materials unless they are obscene. And that's a word with special meaning in the legal system. One key element is that to be obscene, a book must be, quote, utterly without redeeming social importance to minors, end quote. The attorney's memo also cited cases that indicated that simply moving the book to the library's adult section based on officials' view of its content could also violate the First Amendment. Teen Connor Pearson spoke to those points. You talk about how it's your right to protect our kids from these images, but have you ever thought about our children, our own children's rights? As children and teens, we have the right to read what we want, when we want. 
the same way you do according to the First Amendment. Ketchikan City Council member Jack Finnegan, who sits on the Library Advisory Board, commended Young and Pearson for speaking out. He supported keeping the book in the teen section. The library staff's duty to safeguard the public is limited to running interference against disruptive or dangerous behavior with the help of outside sources like the police department if necessary. It is a library's role to house ideas, not to shield people from ideas they may find objectionable. That is one of the costs that is associated with enjoying our freedom of speech. The other elected official on the advisory board, Ketchikan Gateway Borough Assembly member Grant Echohawk, also supported the book. Even though I disagree with the with some of the content, when I look at it as a whole, it provides instruction, it provides knowledge. The board voted 6-1 to one to recommend the library keep the book in the teen section. The lone dissenting vote came from Deborah Simon, who represents residents outside Ketchikan and Saxman City limits. I find that this book is inconsistent with the selection criteria as I can assume it to be, and therefore requires adult supervision. I believe that the book should be moved from the teens section to the adult section. The board's vote to keep the book in the teen section is non-binding. It's advice to the library director and her superior, Ketchikan City Manager Delilah Walsh. Walsh said at the meeting that the decision to keep the book in the teen section could be appealed to the city council. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. As winter thaws into spring, insect life is emerging in southeast Alaska. As Alain de Bremenil spoke with Juno naturalist Bob Armstrong to find out what the bugs are doing. Temperatures are climbing up from freezing. Two weeks ago, a caddisfly was reportedly seen circling around the Haynes light bulb. A few days ago, a large mosquito was observed landing on a pile of wood the insects of the Northern Lynn Canal are coming out. Bob Armstrong was a biologist for Fish and Game who retired decades ago. He has since turned his attention to the insects around his home in Juneau. Armstrong says some of the early insects we are seeing have spent the winter in their adult form. Caddisflies, there's some that overwinter under the bark of trees as an adult. Then when spring arrives, they go into their mating ritual. And there's another one called a snow midge that comes out in midwinter, and its sole purpose is for mating, and they run about on the ice and mate with one another. They're very tiny, look like a little fly. Armstrong says the morning cloak butterflies also overwinter as adults. They have dark red wings with a yellow edge and are the first butterflies out in the spring. Some spiders also stay active throughout the winter. There's quite a few that come out on the snow to hunt. There are uh, insects that come out and run about on the snow and they go after them in winter. Armstrong says spiders tolerate the frost, but only to a certain point. And so once they do their hunting, they have to go back down into the ground below the snow. And from what I understand is if they're out and about and we get some rain or things start to melt a little bit and then the temperature plummets, they can't get back down into the ground and they end up uh, freezing and dying. Armstrong says willow catkins, the budding flower clusters on willow branches, are already attracting a lot of bugs near his home in Juneau. And there's one fascinating uh, insect called a willow weevil, which is a beetle, but it has a big snout. And they uh, mate on the willow catkins and then the female lays her eggs on them, and then the larva eats the inside of the catkin. That is just one link in the food chain. 
Armstrong says some birds have learned to recognize an infested catkin by its curved shape. He has observed birds feasting on catkins full of larvae. Other iconic bugs are feeding on the willows. The spotted tussock moth spends its youth as a black and yellow caterpillar known as the woolly bear. They're toxic, so birds won't eat the caterpillars. But when they go into their cocoons, they lose that toxicity. Chickadees have learned to target them and eat the larvae inside. So that's why they have learned to build their cocoons under rocks where other creatures can't get to them. As adults, the moths make a clicking noise that helps prevent them from being eaten by bats. The clicking acts like a warning flag. Armstrong says there is some evidence the clicking interferes with bat sonars. But probably the most important insect in Alaska is the queen bumblebee. Armstrong says those important pollinators overwinter by themselves in the ground. In the spring, they have to rush to eat enough food to be able to lay eggs. There's a plant called an early blueberry that blossoms probably any day now, and you'll see uh, quite a few bumblebees coming to the flowers and feeding on them. This time of year, they would be the queen bumblebees. Blowflies are also pollinators. Those metallic-looking flies spend part of their youth as maggots in salmon carcasses. Then the maggots go through maybe up to six stages and then uh, burrow into the ground and pupate and emerge as adults. And I read one report where they determined they were more important than bumblebees. After watching insects closely for many years, Armstrong says he sees their individual personalities. Most interesting is I did quite a bit of work with crab spiders. These spiders do not weave a web. They hunt on flowers. Bumblebees are prized catch for the females because that gives them enough food and energy to lay their eggs. It's just fascinating to watch the different bumblebees that will approach a flower with a crab spider on it. Some of them will hover there looking and going around the flower and so on, and then they'll zoom away, and others will just land on the flower and feed and get caught. Armstrong says nowadays he sees less insects than in past years. Studies around the world confirm this observation. There's quite a bit of evidence worldwide that a lot of insects are declining because of climate change. Almost every place where they've looked, there's been up to about a 70% decline in the abundance of insects. So it's pretty sad what's happening. A friend of Armstrong's in Gustavus also has observed a decline in bumblebees. He tied it to the decline in willows, an important food source. He says a large moose population has been feeding on the willow, reducing their number. Probably what's needed is to uh, eliminate the wolf predator control program so it'll help control the moose so the bumblebees will survive better. Armstrong says life is complicated and humans often get it wrong. Maybe observing our insect neighbors more closely can help us get it right. For KHNS, I'm Alan DePremineau. That concludes the news portion of Midday Magazine, and coming up next, we'll have local and marine weather forecasts.